What's up, y'all? Welcome to another episode of Rethinking Christianity. On today's episode, I interview Megan Chance. Megan is the author of Women Rising, Learning to Listen, Reclaiming Our Voice. And on today's episode, I interview her and we talk about a topic that she's very passionate about, which is women's equality and the fight for women's justice uh, in the church and around the world. And so this interview is all on that topic. And with that being said, here is the interview with Megan. Megan Chance is a writer, speaker, and former missionary who is passionate about empowering women and reclaiming feminism for the Christian faith. She is a prolific uh, blogger, host of the Faith and Feminism podcast, and is an avid traveler. She and her husband, Dustin, live in Northeast Georgia. Uh, We're so glad to have Megan on today on the Rethinking Christianity podcast. Thank you so much uh, for coming on. She has recently written a book through InterVarsity Press, um, it is called Women Rising, Learning to Listen, Reclaiming Our Voice. Uh, and if you have the opportunity to go on Amazon, check that out. I would encourage you to do so on Kindle, wherever um, you buy books, you should get it. So, Megan, thank you so much for, for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, your story kind of starts off with, I guess, you growing up in more traditional, I guess, background. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this led to you to doing uh, mission work. Um, And so, you know, your book is all about your exposure to women being exploited and oppressed uh, in foreign countries. And I think, you know, that's the common kind of thing that's presented to the church is that women are being treated poorly in other countries. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I've gotten from the book is that uh, while that is also true, there is another fight that has to go on alongside of that that Mm -hmm. often doesn't get mentioned or talked about. And so um, before we kind of get into that, I'd love to hear just as you were serving as a missionary Mm -hmm. um, and working with exploited women, uh, what injustices did you often see? Uh, Well, so many. Um, uh, I think a lot of the world, I mean, in my experience, every country I went to, there was some form of women's oppression or women's exploitation. There's no country that's free from it. Um, But of course, it varies in severity. Um, And so the first time I think I really had my eyes open to just an extreme practice was um, in Kenya, um, working with young girls who had survived female genital mutilation. Um, which is where all or some of the external genitalia is removed. Um, So it makes sex extremely painful. And not only does it make sex extremely painful, it also creates a host of issues um, when it comes to health. Um, It it creates issues with urinary tract systems. Um, When it comes to give birth, a lot of times those babies can get stuck because the hole is smaller. Um, And so it's this totally terrible practice that is happening to millions and millions of young girls in Africa. And so what happens is around the age of between the ages of 12 and 15, they'll take women, or I should, I keep saying women, but I mean, young girls to, um, local women who will, uh, you know, without proper training or anesthesia, remove all or some of the external genitalia. Um, and the process is done, like I said, without anesthesia, sometimes these young girls bleed to death during the procedure and for the rest of their life, they have to live with the trauma of what happened to them. And then also the host of other health issues that come from it. And so I remember when young girls were asking me about this during my time in Kenya and thinking, oh, this, I'm, I'm sure this doesn't happen here, but then coming to find that it was happening to these women and they were telling me about it. Um, and I think that was the first time um, my eyes began to open to um, really, really terrible practices that are done on, on females just because of their sex. And what I also found is in hand in hand with these procedures um, uh, to remove the genitalia was these really strict gender norms, the idea that women only need to be in the home, that they're housemakers, they're homemakers, um, they need to, you know, kind of submit to the men in their life. And as such, they, you know, had to fight to get their education because they thought, oh, well, if you're just working from home, you don't need to get an education. And so I saw some of the ties of what I had grown up with. I was kind of raised with 
you know, in conservative evangelicalism, which told me that my primary purpose was to stay at home, raise children, my place was in the home, essentially, um, and to serve and submit to my husband. And so I was starting to kind of wonder if these uh, you know, this form of violence was tied to the gender roles that they had. Um, and over time, that question became answered um, that, yes, these things are absolutely tied. And so I was I worked with trafficked women in, um, and girls um, in Asia and India um, had my life just completely changed when I met a young girl who was being raised by the pimp who sold her mother um, and the sex trade there's um, they will um, traffickers from India will go to Nepal to these impoverished villages to um, say, hey, I have a better opportunity for your child and then put that child into trafficking of some sort, whether that's brick kilns if they're a male or the sex trade if they're a female. Um, and so I met a younger girl there who was being raised by the pimp who sold her mother. And just, it infuriated me. It, there is no other word to describe what I just, I couldn't believe this was happening. I couldn't believe that there was, that this was happening. Who, who is buying, you know, who is buying women? Why is this a practice? And I, you know, as I asked more questions, I learned that this culture particularly had a conservative sexual ethic. And so uh, because young men were told not to sleep with their um, you know, their girlfriends or whatever to hold them over until they got married. They would, fathers would take their sons to these trafficked women. And so again, a tie between, um, the, some of the, the teachings I had grown up with and, um, seeing it in a more perverse way overseas. And it was finally when I was working with trafficked women. So I, I was a missionary for, um, many years, five years, um, and so at first I went on this program called the world race, which first introduced me to the story of oppressive women, uh, all these women who had been oppressed and had my life changed because of it and decided I wanted to do more about it. And that's when I was recruited to start an inner healing program. Um, and so I went around the world again, doing these inner healing program for exploited women from everywhere from the United States. We started in the United States to um, overseas from, you know, Africa to Southeast Asia. And it was um, towards the end of one of those um, trips where I went around the world where I was um, working with women who had come out of a sex trade in the Philippines and the way the sex trade looks there. Um, is they'll have these bars and cater to wealthy foreigners. Um, and so a lot of American men, Canadian men, European men, um, Australian men, Korean men, Indian men, just wealthy men from these nations um, going to buy exploited women. And so I had worked with these women and, and they told me their stories most often uh, the reason they found themselves there was because they had no other options. Sometimes they were forced into it by their family, physically forced into it. A lot of times they didn't know the full extent to what they're going into and they had no other way. So um, a phenomenon that's happening right now that's driving the sex trade is uh, with climate change, entire provinces are having uh, their these families who live on the land, who live on a farm on the land or having their farmer, their farm completely wiped out. And so with all of these children, they're like, how do I feed them? And so they'll send their oldest children to the city and say, Hey, find a way to send money back to us because we're starving. We're literally starving to death. And then these young, you know, these, these older women get, um, the older daughters, I should say, get trafficked. Um, and so that was a story I heard quite often, um, was the tie between even like these, these phenomena that you think would never be tied and the sex trade. Um, and so it was there um, while I was working with uh, an organization that um, gave these women the opportunity to get a safe house and also go and get a college education, which could give them more opportunities um, that I was talking to a John. So a John is a man who buys women and um, he was asking us why we were there and we asked him why he was there. And he told me that he came here to get the respect that he deserved because women here were raised right. And they knew how to respect and submit to men. And he went on this really long tirade and it seemed so familiar to me, but I, at first I couldn't place my finger on it um, until it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Like 
he is talking just like the evangelical pastors and preachers that I had growing up. He's talking just like these marriage books I've gotten, like Love and Respect, that talk all about a man's need for respect and um, a woman's need for submission and to be sexually available. And it just hit me like we in the church are not our hands aren't clean. If, as long as we're enforcing these very patriarchal uh, gender norms, I mean, this is literally why that man went there. He didn't say he was a Christian, but everything he's talked about sounded like he could have been, or that he at least was raised with the same kind of gender norms that they teach in the church. And so it changed everything for me. I, I, I did not, you know, as a woman being raised in the conservative context, always trying to be silent, always trying to be submissive, even though it felt wrong, I had the evidence after five years of this work to finally connect that, uh, the, the upbringing I had was also complicit. And if I was going to continue to be silent uh, and submissive in the face of this, I was going to be complicit in, a, in an oppressive system. Um, and so, yeah, that changed everything for me. I quit my job and I started a podcast called Faith and Feminism. And I wrote a book about it because um, so many churches I do really believe want to do better. They really want to fight human trafficking. Um, but sometimes we need to address the teachings that we have in the church that might even be driving that. So if we look at recent examples, Josh Duggar, for one, uh, got caught with child trafficking. I mean, let's say what it is. They say it's child pornography, but that's child sex trafficking. Um, why? And why, you know, Ravi Zacharias, why are all of these men who are supposedly upstanding godly men, um, being complicit in trafficking. And I think it has so much to do with what we teach young men and young women about what it is to be a young man or a young woman. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, obviously sex trafficking is kind of at the forefront of like one of the things that the church is called to help in. Mm -hmm. And you committed what you said, five years of your life to doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, one of the things that doesn't get talked about is kind of what you're presenting uh, mm -hmm. is that the language that's used in the evangelical church is also yeah. the language that's used in these other countries. Um, mm -hmm. So was it the moment that you were speaking with the, the Johns? Is that the correct that you kind of realized mm -hmm. that that was true? Um, because because what doesn't get seem to get presented is, you know, we also have to fight this on mm -hmm. our side also. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a progressive, um, I mean, I, I noticed ties early on. And I think that's why I identified with these women so much is because I was also a survivor of sexual assault. Um, even though I was a good girl, I did everything right. I mean, that's what the church tells you cover up, I covered up, don't, you know, don't do anything bad with your boyfriends. I didn't do anything bad with my boyfriends. Like, I was the good girl, I did everything right. And yet I have, you know, I'm 32. And I have been sexually assaulted by both people I trusted and strangers um, over five times where I've been groped by strangers. And so um, I really, I think identified with these stories when I heard stories of sexual assault, when I heard um, stories of, you know, girls fighting to get an education, I identified with their stories because I knew how I felt like I had to prove myself as a woman, how I felt like uh, you know, I wanted to be, um, one of the things I wanted to be when I grew up was the president and I was told I couldn't because I was a woman. So just, I just, I just identified with them, even though their oppression was a lot more extreme. And so I definitely noticed some, some commonalities, um, and the things that we were taught specifically that women are supposed to be homemakers. Um, and also that, um, you know, we're kind of, you know, we've been told that we're responsible not to be sexually assaulted as if it's our fault instead of the man who does the assaulting. And so I grew up with these ideas that I could prevent the harm that happened to me. And what I found is it didn't matter how good I was, you know, in air quotes, because no sexual assault is justified. I don't care how someone's dressed or talking or whatever. Um, it's, it's not justified. But even as someone who did follow all the rules, why? Why is this happening? And so I was starting to ask the question, why, why, why? And um, 
I did notice a theme when I encountered certain men about the way they viewed women. So like when I, like, it wasn't, the, it definitely wasn't the first time I talked to um, Johns and I write more about this in the book, but um, what I noticed a lot from the Johns is they always felt like they had something to prove. Like I'm going to brag about my money or I'm going to brag about this, or I'm going to show how powerful I am uh, by kind of groping this girl, showing this ownership, this dominance, this control. And when I thought about my own story, I mean, that was what I was told was holy, like men being in control, men being dominant. This is God's way. But what I saw again and again and again is that being completely abused. And not only was it abused, but this was the reason, the why that men were getting. This was the why. And so um, once I had that conversation with that man, like I said, it took a, a little bit to sink in. But that was the moment I was like, I know where I've heard this before. It was on a marriage, you know, I was uh, three weeks before I got married was when I had this conversation. You know, I was given this book, Love and Respect. <laughs> this is where I heard it. And uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to be complicit anymore. And so um, we really need to look at, I mean, there's been so many studies that have come out recently about this. And um, there's a psychoanalyst, her name is Lynn Yonak, and she studies sexual assault and why it happens. She tries to answer the why. And what she found is that sexual assault is not about sexual urges. Like we've been taught, we all have sexual urges, even women gasp, women have sexual <laughs> urges as well. Um, but why, but why do we see sexual violence primarily from uh, men to women? Why is that? And what has society taught us that we see it that way? And I was told it's because men are visual creatures. Well, hot diggity dog. So are women. Um, they also get aroused by seeing, um, nice masculine bodies. And so the question is why, why do we always see, um, you know, if, if we live in a society that one in three women is sexually assaulted, why, and why do you, and why, even when we see, um, this is not to say that men aren't sexually assaulted or young boys aren't sexually assaulted because they are, but even then, when you look at who the perpetrator is, it's most often a male. And so the question is, why are so many men, you know, if we have one in three women being the survivor of assault, how many men are doing the assaulting? And, and we don't know. And I don't think it's one in three. I think that would be an exaggeration to say, but we don't know because we don't study it. And I think a lot of men aren't going to admit um, you know, that they've done assaulting. And so um, I don't think it's one in three, but I do think it's a lot higher of a number um, than we think. And it's oftentimes people that we don't, you know, how many times when a survivor comes forward, they're like, no, not this person. This person could never do that. He's so nice to me. Or I've always been treated with respect um, by this person. This person could have never done that. And I can tell you that I've had really inappropriate um, married pastors behaved really inappropriately towards me. And I knew if I came forward about that, no one would believe me. He's a good guy. He's a pastor. How could he do this? And so I think we need to realize that even men we might care about or who we would call good men are capable of doing bad things. But again, the question I want to focus on is why. And so, like I said, I mentioned earlier, um, Len Yonak studies that sexual assault is actually about power differentials um, and dominance and, and then a need for control. And so where do we get these scripts that men need dominance and, and power and need for control? Well, I mean, it certainly exists outside the church. I mean, we live in a society, a patriarchal society, so men hold most of the power. Um, that's slowly changing, but also around the world, we live in a patriarchal world. This is That's what's happening around the world as well. Um, and so the question we need to ask is, yeah, like, are we complicit in teaching these power differentials? And I would say, um, sadly, in my experience, the church has been one of the greatest upholders of patriarchy. Um, I felt more freedom um, and liberation as a woman outside of the church, being able to, you know, be empowered and to lead and people would listen to me and I could teach. And, um, but when I was in the church, I felt like my voice was taken away and I thought, and I was told that was holy. It was holy for me to submit. It was holy for me to be silent. It was holy for me not to use my voice. Um, but what I want to illustrate if if we have verifiable, you know, studies, researchers have been studying what causes sexual assault. And they're saying again and again and again, it's power differentials. 
than a theology, the theology that we have that I was raised with that props up enormous power differentials between men and women is absolutely priming the ground for abuse. And so for me, after seeing the abuse of women around the world and the abuse that I had survived as well, I just, I'm like, I'm done. I'm done being complicit in a system that tells me to shut up and sit down and cover up. Um, because this is not only hurting, uh, me, this is hurting women around the world. And I would also make the argument that it also hurts men. Um, cause I don't think men are evil creatures, but I do think they've been taught a lot of false things about masculinity that hurt them. And so, um, we can go deeper into that as well, but I just don't feel like this system of patriarchy benefits anyone. And, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't going to be part of it anymore. Yeah, I would, I would definitely agree. I have, you know, my, my, my growing up was similar in a traditional background, um, which I'm thankful for in some ways. Mm-hmm. And, and this is one of the ways I'm not very thankful for. Um, but I was blessed that I was, you know, I was raised by a single mother. And so mm-hmm. I see the strength that, you know, my mother had, she was my dad and my mom. And so it was kind mm-hmm. of this interesting dynamic. And, you know, over the last few years, my thoughts have changed a lot on, you know, the traditional view is complementarianism. And then you have, mm-hmm. The other view that, you know, conservatives call liberal or whatever, that's egalitarian. Um, And I remember, you know, one of the things, it was just a small moment for me personally, as I was working at a church. uh, And I remember some deacons getting upset because they had allowed a a girl from the student ministry to just do the announcements on a Sunday morning. And I was just like, I don't think that that's what they're talking about in in Timothy, obviously, the verse that they're referring to. And recently, you know, that's been something that I've had to think through. And, you know, a lot of the theology, I think a lot of times is this misunderstanding of what was being written at the time Mm -hmm. it was being written. Uh, And, you know, for those listening, there's a lot of great resources you can find if you're if you're Mm -hmm. working through that and you kind of are struggling or you may be in a context where um, response to changing your mind on that is negative. Um, People like N.T. Wright, those are great. He's a great theologian that Mm -hmm. presents, uh, you know, a great viewpoint of treating women equally in leadership. Mm -hmm. And I think it's necessary because that's what Jesus did in the first place. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that, you know, the theology is big because it's, I agree with you that it gets used to prop up uh, systems that are not helpful. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I'm just curious, what was kind of the reaction when you began to kind of resist this? And and you said you kind of moved outside of the church and Mm -hmm. speaking up for women's uh, rights. What was the response there? And how did you feel like, um, how did you, and I'm also curious, how did you feel about your relationship with God? Because I feel like, mm-hmm. you know, as I've kind of deconstructed some of my thoughts and things like that and become frustrated, I very much struggle at times with yeah. like, okay, this God that has placed all these people in leadership, like it's hard mm-hmm. to have faith sometimes like in him. And so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, those are so many good questions. And so it's like, where do I, yeah, sorry. <laughs> No, they're all good. I just, hold on. I'm going to take a note. So I hit every point that I want to say, okay. um, because I think, um, uh, there's a couple of points that definitely want to hit. So the question was, um, how did I, re- how did people re- respond to me? Yes. So how did, and, yeah. and how, how did, did my relationship like? with God? Okay. All right. I, I got it. I just wanted to write down one point that I don't want to forget to talk about. Um, so as one can imagine, people got upset when I started advocating for women's rights, which is so funny because they were all about me talking about human trafficking. But when I talked about the causes of human trafficking, which is inequality. And like I said, there are, this is research. These are studies. Like when we talk about human trafficking, it has so much to do with power. And this is not even just sex trafficking, right? This is also just trafficking in general. It's it's a misuse of power. It's exploiting people. It's wrong. But as soon as someone starts talking about leveling the pay, playing field, equality, people get really upset, right? And it's like, why? We're talking about why it happens. We're not going to make a difference unless we talk about the why. But when people talk about the why, people get really, really upset. And I think that shows that they, you know, even... Um, They've been trained to, first of all, not see systems. Um, um, they've been, you know, everything I was taught, you know, I got sexually assaulted when I, the first time when I was 13. Um, and, you know, I thought it was because I, of what I had been taught, I thought it was my fault, um, that it was an individual 
um, something that just happened with a, an individual, my individual sin or that man's individual sin, um, I didn't see that there was a much larger system at place. And it wasn't until I got to see this again and again. And I think that's why what changed for my stories, I saw that my story, the shame, uh, the fear, the trauma that I carried from, from my story was mirrored in so many different women's stories. So when, if, if we're saying this is a problem of individual sin, okay, maybe, but this individual sin is happening in enormous proportions. And the question is, again, why? Why does this happen on such a great scale? And so I think for me, part of me learning that um, this is not just a one-off case. This is a story that I've heard again and again and again. In fact, I don't know I don't know a single woman who hasn't survived sexual assault or at least sexual harassment. And, and we're talking about multiple times. It's not, it's not one. It's not, it rarely happens just once. It's just existing in the world as a woman. Um, it's hard because you don't know who you can trust and you don't know who's going to harm you. And you don't know when you're going to get catcalled. And of course we're given all of these scripts of how to protect ourselves. But like I said earlier, this doesn't actually protect us. And so we need to, again, ask why, why does this keep on happening? This is, this is systemic. And if we're talking about biblical terms in the Bible, it talks about, um, you know, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against powers and principalities. When I think it says powers and principalities, I mean, it means powers of patriarchy and principalities that, um, that are driving these um, unjust systems. And so we live in a patriarchy, which means that women are vulnerable, which means a lot of women are going to be the survivors of assault and abuse. And so we need to address that. And so, of course, I saw this, started speaking up against it. And because I was pushing against a system that I had been, that many had been taught is holy and good and righteous, um, people got really upset, really, really upset. And I think we've been trained to get upset about against people who go against the status quo, which is so funny because if we look at who Jesus was, my goodness, uh, what he did is defy the status quo all the time. And I can get into that deeper. Um, but yeah, so I started speaking out and, um, at first I started speaking up for women and kind of pushing back against, uh, some of the language that was used in my Christian missions organization. And uh, while I got change, things did change. I also was kind of villainized for it. And so that was the beginning, I think, of, of learning that there was a cost to speaking up. Um, but as time went on, I had friends um, and family get very upset with me. Um, and uh, like I said, right when a lot of this realization was happening, I was getting married. And of course my husband, you know, by this point, I definitely knew I was, you know, <laughs> a feminist or egalitarian uh, for people who might, you know, and I first want to pause real quick. People get really offended by the term feminism and I'm just going to break it down. If you look at the dictionary definition, it's equality between men and women. That is literally it. So when I'm using the word feminism, that is what I mean. Um, I think people have... <laughs> given in proper definitions for the word. So I proudly claim feminism. And I think you should too. Everyone should be a feminist because if you don't believe in equality between men and women, you need to revisit a few things. But regardless, so my partner, uh, my husband, Dustin, he was feminist um, and, you know, pro-woman and all of that stuff. But when he began to speak out against it and defend me against his, in, um, his parents, my in-laws, uh, things got really heated. Uh, we eventually had to cancel flights home to see them. And around this time it was also during the Kavanaugh hearings, which if you, I mean, I know that it's again, another heated thing, but as a survivor of assault, um, as a woman who has heard countless stories of, of assault, I, to this day have strangers, uh, you know, who follow me on Instagram messaging me about, I've never told anyone this but I was assaulted by this person or this person. And I thought I could trust them, but I've never told anyone because no one will believe me. And I get these messages all the time. And so knowing that so many women are the survivors of assault, I believed Dr. Ford um, during the Kavanaugh hearings. And I wrote a blog about how I believe Dr. Ford. And I had a friend that 
Um, we had been friends for well over a decade. Um, a close friend messaged me on my 30th birthday telling me uh, that she could not support me anymore because she couldn't be tied to the liberal agenda. And my belief in doc, uh, what Dr. Ford said and her experience made me, I guess, reduced me to the liberal agenda. Mm. And I remember um, that day, it was in, the, like I said, it was in the midst of a, a series of family members, other friends, distan distancing their, themselves from me or being outright angry and telling me I was going to hell. Um, but it was, it was just a really, really hard time. And here it was my birthday. I thought it would be a message, you know, saying happy birthday. I miss you. And what it was was something completely different. And I remember just going out to my car. I was at, I was in Starbucks at the time and, you know, I gather, I'm sobbing and I gather up my things and just crying in the car and I'm crying and I'm crying and I'm crying. I'm like, why this speaking up is costing too much. And, but what really scared me is like, what if they're right? What if they're right? And I am going to hell. What if they're right? And God is disappointed in me. What if they're right? And, um, God hates me and hates what I believe in and what I stand for. And it was when I was, you know, I couldn't drive home because I was crying so hard. Um, and I hear this knock on the door of my car window and there's this woman standing there and she motions for me to get out of the car. And I'm like looking around my car for like a Kleenex or something like I have snot and mascara everywhere. Um, and, and something tells me to get out of the car and she keeps beckoning me to get out of the car. And so I do, I get out of the car and this woman just pulls me into a hug and says, I am not going to let you leave here until you know how loved you are. And then she kept on saying that God was proud of me and saw me and all of these prayers that of course, she doesn't know who I am. She doesn't know what's going on in my life, but it felt like God was speaking directly to me. It felt like I was being embraced by God. I don't even have another way to describe it than that. This, like when I thought all was lost, when God had turned their back on me, this woman came and showed me that God was with me closer than my skin. And it was so interesting because in, in, in the span of, you know, half an hour or so, I was rejected by one version of the Christian God because of the liberal agenda. And I was embraced by, I think, the true version of the Christian God. And I think God sent me that way. And so when you're asking me, how has my relationship with God been? Well, for a lot of the time, I felt untethered. I doubted myself. I doubted my voice, but I would just remember um, what I had seen from these women, what, you know, the research I've done on, you know, scripture, this is not, I don't come to the conclusions I have lightly. Um, there's a lot of scripture or resources out there that can talk to you more. Um, you, you mentioned N.T. Wright. Uh, there's more books like The Making of Biblical Womanhood is another one that just came out, um, which is really good. But, uh, you know, Jesus Feminist by Sarah Bessie. There's a lot of books out there that talk from a biblical standpoint. Well, maybe this isn't. <laughs> Maybe this isn't what we've been told. Why not women is another one by Lauren Cunningham, like powerful and free. I could literally go on all day about books I've read. Um, so I, I, I had come to this conclusion with study and with prayer, but to feel like God still let, like I did feel untethered because I faced so much pushback from it. And I'm like, well, maybe they're right. And I am wrong. And God doesn't care about women's justice. And even saying that now, it seems so silly, but because of course God cares. Um, and so I think since that moment, um, I haven't, I haven't felt like God has left me since I have, I had felt that before, but I feel like God is with me a hundred percent. I feel like this is God's dream as much as, or more so than it is mine. I feel like I'm actually, you know, we always prayed that prayer growing up. God just use me. Um, I feel like this is the way God has chose to use my life and, and what I've been made for. And I get, you know, my book just came out uh, two weeks ago and I get three or four messages every day from strangers who said the book was what they needed and they, it brought them closer to God and they're ready to give up on God, but now they're not going to anymore because there's, there's another version of the Christian God. There's a God that loves justice and cares. And, you know, it's not necessarily this angry, vengeful, don't wear your mask kind of God. Right. Um, so I, you know, I, I know that God's with me. I, it, it doesn't look like I was taught it would look, um, you know, I don't, <laughs> I was a perfectionist before I would spend at least 
you know, 30 minutes reading my Bible and praying and journaling every morning. And if I missed a day, I thought God was mad at me. Um, it doesn't look like that anymore. Uh, it's a lot more like a relationship and I do journal and I do pray, but it's more out of authenticity than me trying to earn something from God. Um, and I do feel very close to God. So that is a question I get a lot. Um, I don't feel close to the version I was presented because uh, I don't think that was the full version of God. And while I'm grateful that it introduced me to Jesus, I, I'm, um, I think there's a lot of things that have been misconstrued. And so, which brings me into my next point. I think a lot of us are struggling with, I mean, if you look at statistics, um, church leader, you know, membership is the lowest it's ever been, um, at least since they've been keeping score or keeping track of it. And, um, I think a lot of people can be discouraged by that. They might be discouraged by their own journey, feeling like maybe the church isn't the safest place for them. But as I've done more research and more study, and I think this is something we really need to point out, we need to understand that church and Christianity has always been used as a form of oppression since the beginning. <laughs> I mean, we, we look at the Bible and Jesus is constantly calling out the religious elite. Uh, it's faith being used as a weapon to oppress. We see these Pharisees who tell people not to do anything on Sunday and they're super religious about that, but then they don't care that widows and orphans are dying. And, and Jesus constantly reprimands them. You, you know, you give, you tithe, you pray, you do all of these things, but you've neglected the more important matters, which is, you know, to take care of the widow and the orphan, to clothe the naked, to, and I mean, this is all over the New Testament, all over the New Testament. God is, or Jesus is directly condemning the religious elite who use their religion as a form to oppress and to get power. And for some reason, I think, I think the modern church thinks we're above it. We can't, we can't be Pharisees. I feel like the Pharisees are in there to be like, don't be like these guys. And they fail to see that in many ways, we are using our faith just like the Pharisees did to use it as a system of power, to get more control, to look holy without doing holy things. Um, and I mean, this is even in the Old Testament. If you go to Isaiah, uh, you know, there's all of these <laughs> verses or, you know, passages about, you know, you have your festivals, you have your prayers and I, and you have your sacrifices and I don't want any of it. God says, I want you to wash your hands and be clean and learn to, you know, take up the cause of the widow and the orphan to loose the change of the chains of injustice again. And again, we see people using religion as a form of power, as a form to appear holy. And I don't even think I mean, if we look at scripture, they're not even aware of it. That's why they send prophets, right? It's like, I didn't know I was doing a bad job. So God sent prophets to be like, hey, like, this is what I want. This is what I need. I, I desire justice and mercy and, and a right way of living. I don't really care about how many worship songs you sing or how many churches you have. I care about how you interact in the world. And so if we even take that further. I think God warned us about this in scripture, yet the church has constantly been used as a form of oppression. And so, I mean, if we're even taking it to the history of the United States, who were the biggest defenders of slaveholding? Christians. People were using scripture to justify the buying and selling of human beings, the rape of human beings, the, the, the abuse of human beings um, for <laughs> forever. If you look at Jim Crow, same story, Christians. If you look at who's been the biggest fighters against the women's rights movement, Christians. Yet, so there's this concept and, and, and a lot of Black um, scholars. So I think this one is specifically from James Fowler, um, but I'm not entirely sure. It was one of the guests I had on my podcast, but there's this concept of the people's church versus the ruler's church. And we see that rulers have always used Christianity or some form of religion as a form of oppression. We have seen this again and again and again. And if we don't see it, we're not, we're, our eyes are not open, our ears are not hearing. Christianity has been used as a form of oppression. And this goes, again, far beyond the United States. I could, you know, I could talk about in each country, you know, how early missionaries in Europe would take over land and kill anyone 
or convert anyone that wasn't a Christian to claim it for a Christian monarch. It was used, Christianity was used to take land from Native Americans. Like Christianity has been used for bad things. Yet there's also always been a people's church. Um, there is always a church of liberators. So you see that Christianity was used by the slaveholders, but Christianity is also what motivated the abolitionists. And so we're seeing these two different versions of the Christian God, which I talked about earlier, but there has always been an oppressive church. And we call this the ruler's church. And I'm pretty sure this is James Fowler and maybe it's James Baldwin. I actually think it's James Baldwin. Um, Sorry. I talk to, I interview a lot of people. Um, James Baldwin talks about this. Um, and that that ruler's church have all, has always been using religion to oppress. And that's how they get so much power because they say, if you stand up against me, you're standing up against God. That's how they keep their power, right? People don't want to go to hell. They don't want God to be against them. For me, it almost shut me up. Because I'm like, I don't want God to be against me. I can handle people being against me. What I cannot handle is God being against me. Um, And then you have the people's church. And if you look at the faith of the abolitionists or Martin Luther Luther King Jr., he had a people's, um, he was part of the people's church, a church of liberation, a church that cared for the flourishing of all people, not using Christianity as a weapon to harm people. And so when people are struggling with their relationship with God, what I want to tell them is there has always been a ruler's church and you were probably, there's a good chance if you were the, you know, dominant church growing up, there's a good chance that there's some elements of the ruler's church in it. Um, and that's not to say that all churches are ruler's church or people's churches. I think there's gray area. Um, I think the way you can tell is by the fruit. Is this being used to liberate and open the gates to all people? Or is this being used to exclude and say who's holy and who's not and who has power and who doesn't? Um, Because when you look at the scriptures, I truly believe that our faith is a faith of liberation and not of, of gatekeeping and not of keeping people out. And so when people are struggling with this, what I want to say is look at the people's church, look at the faith of abolitionists, look at the faith of civil rights leaders. Just recently, there's so much writing out there so much. And I feel like that's what's in so many ways has saved my faith is womanist theology, which is black women's theology um, and the theology of uh, civil rights leaders, uh, the faith of an abolitionist. Um, because I think that's where you'll actually find the Jesus, the real Jesus, not the one that's been used to oppress people. Um, and so I know that was a really long winded <laughs> answer, that's but okay. I think it's really important that people realize that, yeah, I get why you'd want to leave the people or the rulers church. I get it. And I think you should, it's not even like, I'm sad about people leaving the church. I'm not. Um, I think they're washing their hands of a system that has been used to harm people. I actually am glad, but I don't think we need to give up on our faith altogether. I just think we need to um, <laughs> find find the Jesus of the scriptures, not the one that has been used to oppress other people. And I have one more thought. So I think we're in another, uh, you know, we there's in the late 18th century, I think it was the late 18th century, we had something called the Reformation, which I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with, but when, you know, we have the Catholic and the Protestant church, when Martin Luther posted his 95 theses. And let me just say, I have some issues with Martin Luther and I have some issues with the reformation, but they saw something wrong in the church. And they're like, I can't be part of this old system anymore because this is harmful. And so that's where the Protestant church was born. And I think we're in another movement. It's like, I can't be part of this anymore because I think it's actually hurting more than it's helping. And so let me start something new. And I think that's, that's the story, even what we see in scripture of people finding, of having a personal relationship with God, of finding the actual Jesus, not this one that they've been taught, if that makes sense. No, I definitely understand. Yeah, I would agree. I I see that what is often unfortunate about it for a lot of people is um, the negative impacts of what the church has done and used is what is most uh, prevalent in people's minds mm-hmm. when they think of Christianity. Uh, and so it's almost like you have to, you have to do things to an even greater uh, point of trying to like improve. You're having to restart essentially mm-hmm. uh, and represent the church to people. 
Uh, and you know, what I encourage people to do is like, look at Jesus. Don't necessarily mm-hmm. look at the, which is, I, I try to do that empathetically because I know people mm-hmm. go through a lot of different situations, just like you have and, and the people uh, in churches that have been abused and, and things like that. And so I think that um, one of the biggest issues is that conversations like this don't really happen in the mm-hmm. church. Um, conversations around gender, conversations around sex. And if it has happened, it's always, it always ends at the same point and there's no real room for disagreements right. uh, and people become isolated. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you kind of wish maybe that like the church would handle I guess conversations on gender and like and and sex better um, because I know sex is another whole another deal, um, right. which is I, I listen I listened to an interview recently it was I think it was Joshua Harris and he was mm-hmm. talking about the book he wrote I kissed dating goodbye and um, he has since kind of apologized for that um, and and just the purity culture and everything and so um, so what in what ways or how do you wish maybe that the church would handle those conversations differently. Yeah, it's so funny because I remember the church telling me to not be afraid, right? How many times? They're like 365 times it's mentioned in the Bible, so you shouldn't be afraid every day. And I think that's so funny because I think there's so much fear in the church. They think that if we ask questions or if we disagree, that will fall away, that it's a slippery slope. And maybe it is a slippery slope because for me, uh, starting to see women's uh, oppression and and how the church was complicit did also lead me to deconstruct a lot of things, um, a lot of other things beyond that. But I also think people it's it's it don't, it's like this need for control and power again that that people they don't trust people's relationship with God. They feel like their relationship has to be look exactly the same as they've been taught. And if they step outside of it, then they're wrong or sinful or going to hell, which is my goodness. The number of times I've been told I'm going to hell is a lot. (laughs) Um, But I think that's really sad because I just don't think like, I I don't know where we got this idea that we're not supposed to talk about anything because I think that's literally what we saw with Jesus is like he was breaking all of these societal norms of what could and could not be done and even his disciples like weren't getting it like they had all of these rules right and so we I think it was um I'm not sure if it was Peter what was the vision of like the food coming down on the sheet which was that Peter or was that do you know what it or was it called? I was some disciple. You look bad. I don't know my body. Yeah, I know. Well, I, people know the story even if they don't know which disciple it was. But basically, in the Bible, you know, uh, it's coming from the Jewish religion. Things were seen as clean and unclean. And one of the disciples is like having this dream, vision, whatever, uh, where God comes down and says, "Eat!" Like it's a bunch of food and he's like take and eat and the disciples like no 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 those are unclean you can I know better this is a trick I'm not gonna eat that food and again like come and eat come and eat and he's like do not call unclean what I have made clean and I think that's just another example of like these were really strict rules that he was taught and he thought he was so afraid of breaking these rules because God would be mad. But what God, I think, is showing us again and again is maybe this is not about rules. Uh, this is about uh, being inclusive and bringing people in. And so, I mean, there's another example of that. Like Jesus says um, that he's the new covenant. So we had, you know, when we talk about all of these laws in Leviticus and Deuteronomy uh, and how strict they lived by these, he's like, I'm the new covenant. Like you can stop sacrificing a dove in like inches or whatever. I don't even know, like the cubits, all of that stuff. Like I am the new covenant. And I think so often us as humans want to, we want a set of rules to live by. We want to know what's right and what's wrong. But I think there's so much more gray in our relationship with God. And I mean, even when people ask Paul about it, he's like, oh, is it okay to drink? And he's like, well, it's okay if it's not harming someone or if it's not causing someone else to stumble, then go for it. And so it's even that the issue of alcohol is not cut and dry. And, and as humans, we want the clarity of knowing if something is good or bad. But if we're looking at so many different things, well, it, it could be good in this context and bad in another context. And how do you use it? And why are you using it? And there's all of these questions that come into it. And so I think 
if we're not having conversations and we just label things as good or bad, we're missing the point. I think the Bible talks about, Hey, like you're missing the point. Um, and that there's, there's freedom to have discussions. And I remember being in college and my small group leader was like, Megan, I don't even know if you're a Christian, you ask way too many questions. And what that taught me is don't ask questions. Don't make your faith your own. Don't seek to understand, just swallow this pill and don't ask questions. Um, And I think that's really hurting us. And we can't have authentic faith because we've never been allowed to question it or question what we've been taught and, and what is God and what is man-made rules. Um, And so I think we need to learn to have these conversations and have them with an open mind if we can. I know that's really hard, Um, but that there's more space. And again, I'm going to use that story of whatever disciple it was on the roof. Um, don't call unclean what I have made clean and what has God made clean? What has Jesus made clean? And, and, and if something is harmful, what makes it harmful? Um, and so for me, I think if I'm boiling it down to what I understand from scripture, Jesus says, you know, when, when the guy asked Jesus, like, what's the greatest commandment? And he's like, the first commandment is love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. These two commandments sum up all the law of all of the prophets. So I think when we keep on adding things that are beyond love God and love others, that's actually not even scriptural because it says everything is summed up in these. And so the question of what is sinful and what is not sinful for me, is it loving God and is it loving others? Is it harming others? Is this, and I think that's when things become sinful is when they harm others. And so for me, I think there's a lot of gray area. Um, You know, when we talk about specifically with sex, um, we were told, I was taught that sex was good as long as it wasn't a marriage context. Well, as I've already discussed before, with these power differentials that are taught into marriage, all of these harmful teachings telling women that they need to be sexually available for their husbands at all times and they can't really say no is not teaching consent. And I think there's actually a lot of really harmful sex that happens in marriage, a lot of really unethical sex, a lot of sex that is not God's design for sex um, happening in, in marriages. And so for me, that seems like a lot bigger deal of a husband abusing his power of abusing his wife's body, or perhaps even only looking for his own sexual gratification without worrying about hers. To me, that seems like a lot bigger of a deal than two people who are engaged and love and honor themselves and have sex. And so I know that's super bad. I can't, you know, people are probably like, Oh, I'm not going to read her book now. But for me, what I'm looking at is how are you honoring and loving someone? And what is the design for sex? Is it for connection? Is it for honoring one another? Is it to have pleasure? Um, well, then if only one of those people in, in marriage is getting them that, then that's not ethical sex. Um, and so I think we really need to ask questions because clearly just saying, as long as it's in marriage, it's good, is not helpful. There's women who get raped all the time. Um, I have worked with so many women who are survivors of abusive sex within marriage against in the confines of marriage for me to be like, "Mm, I think we need to have a conversation about this. What is ethical sex? What does God teach about ethical sex? And where are we even getting these ideas? And let's examine scripture here. Let's have a conversation about it. Um, So for me, I, again, I'm using what Jesus said are the two greatest commandments to inform why, how I interact in the world. Um, And some people might, (laughs) what I hear again and again is a lot of people use like Adam and Eve, like someone showed up the other day in my comments. There's also Christians do not follow hashtags you disagree with to argue with people on the internet because that is exhausting and that's not the way of Christ. But I have people always show up in my my comments and um, I, I made a comment about how women are not made for men. Um, because I don't think that's scripturally accurate. And I don't think that's the way Jesus interacted with women. And I presented all of these facts, but she said, because, um, Adam and Eve, 
you know, their marriage, like he was over her, um, which I would like to argue is actually a result of the fall because it comes after a sin entered the world. And that's when patriarchy enters in, in, in Genesis 3.16, it says your husband will be for your desire and or uh, your your hus- your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That only that ruling over only came after the fall. So this is a, an example, I think, of not how relationships should be. Regardless, I think we need to be like, okay, so this is informing your thing of scripture. Is mine less valid because I'm getting it from Jesus himself? <laughs> I hope not. Um, and so I think we just need to learn to have conversations and not dismiss someone who has questions or might view scripture differently as sinful or a heathen or a heretic um, or a heretic. I always say it wrong as a heretic, um, because I think there's, there's so much room and there's so much context that we don't understand, um, coming from the Bible. And here's another thing that I get a lot is like, the Bible simply says that women can, women cannot teach and women must submit to their husbands. And I, I guess you could make that argument that it is simply said in that context. Of course, there's, a lot of context you're missing, you know, specific times, specific place. Um, there's also a lot of biblical scholars that think he was actually quoting Roman law and he was refuting that. And the quotations got left out. There's a lot of translations of the Bible um, that actually changed the female disciple uh, Junia to Junius. Um, so we know that translators have altered the Bible to make it more patriarchal. Um, so we know that, but also when I hear this, I'm like, okay, if the Bible is read simply, let's use your example. The Bible is, should be read simply. Well, then why, as in the story of the rich young Mueller, are we not giving all of our money away and giving it to the poor? Clearly you understand this is context. Clearly you understand that it's to a certain man in a certain time for certain reasons. So you understand context, yet you choose not to understand context when it gives you power. And so for me, when we're seeing these stories, who are you trying to protect? You're trying to protect your power. Um, And I don't even remember the question you asked me because I just went on a rant. So I hope I answered it. No, you did. It was just how how we should handle conversation on. Mm. And and the first step is to have it. So, yeah, um, (laughs) you know, yeah, um, but yeah, to... To respond to what you also said about yeah. like the context, the context of the Bible thing, mm-hmm. the thing I always uh, recently I've said is like, well, it, I had a guy, I, I didn't, I wanted to ask him, he's married. He mentioned something yeah. um, about women teaching or whatever. And I was like, well, why doesn't your wife wear a head covering then? Because that's, yeah. a, and so yeah. obvi- we understand context right. and it's, mm-hmm. it's very, it's a choice. Um, and I had mentioned NT right earlier. There's some clips mm-hmm. on YouTube that he gives a great explanation of that verse in Timothy um, where he talks about how in this context uh, in, in that area in Ephesus, mm-hmm. the, the God Artemis was very mm-hmm. popular and the, the leaders of that religion were women. Uh, and so his advice to, to in that letter is to um, maybe not have women speaking in that area because they, they didn't want to cause confusion between the two religions. And so that yeah. is one of the one of the arguments that people have. Um, and I'm sure there are many others. Um, There's a lot. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely more nuanced. And I think, I don't think the Bible simply says a lot of anything that, you know, I think it's a much more nuanced thing. And I think, I think that is part of, you know, the root of a lot of the issues that I think are coming to light for a lot of people within the church, because Mm -hmm. um, we cannot simply take just English translation and Mm -hmm. the Americanized version of our reading or the Western version of reading the Bible and say, Mm -hmm. Oh, well, this is just how it is. Mm-hmm. Um, there's much more to it. And, and you've mentioned uh, some resources. There are great resources um, yeah. because I think the, I think a lot of people struggle with this conversation because of the theology they've been taught and they don't mm-hmm. want, just like you mentioned, they don't want God to view them uh, you know, differently or they don't want mm-hmm. God to be angry with them. Uh, and so I would, I would agree. I think having a conversation is important. And I think also mm-hmm. um, leading people and helping them kind of maybe, maybe necessarily, I guess, just because your pastor says something doesn't mean he's right about it also just because (laughs) you know that that's one of the things and yeah but there are also pastors that are are right and so you Mm -hmm. know you have to kind of you know find a balance there um and so as we kind of close out i'd love to ask um so what advice do you have for any women that are kind of trying to find uh her voice i know we have women that will probably be Mm -hmm. listening to this uh and so your book is women rising 
learning mm-hmm. to listen and reclaiming uh, our voice. So what's some advice that you kind of have? Yeah, um, for women, I think, that, I mean, there's so much advice I have. I think I'm going to tell you a Bible story because for this one, it really inspires me. Um, but the, we have the story of Mary and Martha, um, which I think a lot of us are familiar with. But the story of Mary and Martha is, you know, the setting. Setting is important. It's a very patriarchal time. Women are not allowed to interact with men. They're not really supposed to be outside the home. They're certainly not allowed to teach or to, you know, even learn. Um, they've been excluded from society so much, and 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 they're really told to kind of just stay in their place, prepare the home, serve men in your life. Sounds familiar, huh? Uh, obviously, it was a lot more extreme than what we have today, much more extreme, a lot higher stakes, stonings, you know, we read about women being stoned in the Bible um, and, and women not being, you know, they couldn't inherit property, much more extreme um, patriarchal context. And so we, we open to the story and Mary is doing as a good woman, or sorry, Martha is doing as a good woman should. She's preparing the home for Jesus and his disciples. She's cooking, she's cleaning, she's preparing the house. Um, and then we have Mary and instead of preparing the house as a good woman should, according to her gender norms, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning from him. And this is so offensive in, in so many different ways because women are not allowed to interact with men. And here is Mary acting like one of the dudes, interacting with men, learning from Jesus, which is something she's prohibited from doing. And especially if you are sitting at the feet of a rabbi, oftentimes that's because you intend to become a rabbi or a teacher yourself. And so she's doing everything wrong. And it makes sense why Martha comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, Jesus, like, help me get Mary back in the kitchen where she should be, where she, where she belongs. And, and one sentence, I feel like Jesus kind of completely flips these gender norms on their head because Jesus says back to Martha, Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken from her. And, um, I think we really need to pay attention to all that that means, Mary has broken with her prescribed gender roles to sit at the feet of Jesus and to learn and to teach and to, and to be in the presence of men. And it is better and it will not be taken from her. And so for women listening, if you are a woman who is called to teach or lead or preach or be in the presence of men to step outside your gender norm, I feel like Jesus is saying to you, you have chosen what is better and it will not be taken from you. And so that's what I wanted to say to the women is that you're not alone and that your voice matters and uh, keep doing what you're doing or, or find the courage to do what you're to, to do what you know you're made to do. Yeah, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the last question I want to ask is for us guys. So, you know, what advice can you, do you feel like men need to hear that want, that want to be a part of progress uh, for women's rights and equality yeah. within the church? And also, you know, I think that I've found, in, and I'll admit to this, even in my own life, or, you know, earlier on, it was a little more like, I would hear this conversation, I'd be like, well, I haven't done anything wrong. Like what, like what? Mm-hmm. And, and so I think, you know, part of it is encouraging men to just be more, listen more listen more is the advice I would give, but I would love to hear kind of what your advice is. Yeah. I, what I love to do here is, um, so I think I can identify with men in some ways being part of a dominant, like the most powerful people in society, um, because I'm white. And so when it comes to race, my race holds a lot of power over other races, just like men hold a lot of power over other genders. Um, and so, what I want to say to men and something that I, you know, as I've been learning to learn more about racism and anti-racism, um, I thought the same thing, like, oh, I haven't, you know, used bad language or I don't have hatred towards a certain race or anything like that. And so I'm good. I'm clean. I'm, I'm, I'm not part of this. What I failed to understand and what I failed to see is systems again. And so I know I've talked a lot about systems, but I think it's really important that we see these systems in the church. And so for me, just because individually I felt like I wasn't hurting people in it. I want to make the argument that, yes, I have. I just didn't recognize what I was doing as hurtful. Um, And so for me as a white woman, it's been so important for me to sit down 
and learn from black people and to, to listen to their stories. And so, um, over, over the last, I think three or four years, I've dedicated myself to reading um, at least several books by Black authors specifically talking about race issues, um, and even not just even choosing other books by them um, to, to understand the situation better. I've gone through a book called Me and White Supremacy by Leila Afsad. Um, you know, I've had a lot of uh, Black folks on my podcast to learn and listen from. Um, and so for me, the way that I can do better is to number one, educate myself and number two, elevate their voices in whatever chance and sphere I got and take responsibility when I do poorly. And so when I'm talking to men, I want to say the same thing. Um, listen, first of all, um, it's so important that you understand or at least attempt to understand what women go through on a daily basis in every sphere of society, um, what it's like to exist in a woman's body in this world, um, to not feel safe a lot of the time, to not feel believed a lot of the time, to not feel heard a lot of the time, to feel uh, to feel like a, a player in someone else's story or a supporting character in someone else's story and not ever have a story that's for them or about them. Um, and so I would encourage you to read a lot of books about what it's like to live as a woman. Um, my book is a good place to start. So totally get my book. Um, sure. <laughs> um, uh, the next thing I would say is just like with anti-racism, as you learn more, start to use your voice, um, start to amplify the voices of women um, and know that this is a never ending process, that you are always going to be learning more and doing more. Um, but the goal is to fight the system of patriarchy, um, you know, feminism isn't a battle against men. I think that's one of the great lies we've been told. Feminism is um, a battle against patriarchy, against systems that exploit and harm women. And so um, I love men. I'm married to a man. I think men are great. I do think we need, um, no matter what part of, uh, you know, for me as a white woman or men, maybe as white men, they need to examine the power structures that benefit them and harm others. And so um, the only way we can do that is through reading and learning and understanding and amplifying the voices and using your own voice on behalf of those people. Um, so that's the advice I would have. Awesome. Megan, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. I really appreciate this conversation. I'm learning uh, a lot from this and just kind of, as I'm rethinking some of my own thoughts and, and how mm -hmm. I've viewed women and maybe some of the language that I've used uh, has not been helpful in, in my time uh, as being in ministry and, and other ways. Uh, mm -hmm. But thank you so much for coming on. I want to encourage any listeners uh, to check out Megan's book, Women Rising. I'm going to put the link in the, the uh, notes. You can go down and click that, go buy it. Um, also check out her podcast, uh, Faith and Feminism. Um, again, thank you so much for, for coming on. Thank you for having me. Thanks again, y'all, for tuning in to another episode of Rethinking Christianity. I hope that you found today's episode with Megan interesting. I hope that the interview uh, has made you think a little bit, and I would encourage you to check out her book to get some more insight on some of the ideas and things that she presented in today's interview. Again, thank you so much for your support by listening to the podcast, by sharing posts on Instagram. You can follow us at Rethinking Christianity Podcast on Instagram. That is the handle. Uh, and I just am super thankful for y'all and the support that you have shown by listening. Uh, it keeps me going and keeps me wanting to put out episodes and, and interviewing people and just uh, being a part of a faith journey with people that are working through their faith and trying to follow Jesus better. So again, thank you guys. Until next time, this is Blake and the Rethinking Christianity podcast.